What's happening, Jambase podcast listeners? I'm Andy Kahn, and Jambase is a partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. In this episode, we'll hear my interview with guitarist Jake Xerxes Fussell. I recently spoke to Jake about his terrific new album, Good and Green Again, that's out now on the Paradise of Bachelors record label. That interview is coming up momentarily, right after we hear from the sponsors of this week's episode. This episode is sponsored by Schmogger's Den. Schmogger's Den is an online hangout for jam band fans who love fan art and collectibles. Before music went digital, jam band fans traded live concert cassette tapes from bands who allowed and encouraged fans to record and distribute their shows. This culture birthed tape cover art. All over the country, fans wrote set lists on insert cards they decorated according to whim. Schmogger's Den offers tape cover puzzles made from old Gravel Dead and Fish tape covers from the days of tape trading. The puzzles bear the set list of a show surrounded by Schmogger's own trippy art from back in the day. There's modern day set list art too. And they have every design on shirts for wearing to shows, as well as mugs, posters, and more. Sign up for Schmogger's Den mailing list by March 15th by visiting schmoggersdenlist.com and you could win three puzzles of your choice in any piece counts you like. They make great gifts. Visit schmoggersdenlist.com. That's S-H-M-O-G-G-E-R-S-D-E-N-L-I-S-T.com and schmoggerize your life with their heady products. This episode is brought to you by the Rootsland Podcast. Produced in association with Voicebox Studios in Kingston, Jamaica, the Rootsland Podcast series is a heartfelt tribute to the legends of reggae and the unsung heroes of the genre. The podcast series explores the story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica. The series is narrated by the man himself, Henry K. Cario, a longtime Kingston resident and a music producer who was in the room for some astounding moments in reggae history. Season one of the Roosland podcast peaked at number one on the Apple Music History Charts in Jamaica, Ghana, and Trinidad, and was a top 10 hit in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. Rootsland tells musical stories of landscapes that span styles and genres and transport the listeners to exotic locations. The series follows Henry Kay, a disillusioned justice major at American University, and Brian, an aspiring singer, as they navigate the world of reggae music. Subscribe now and embark on a journey from Kingston's inner city street corners, where aspiring singers audition a cappella in the hopes of escaping a life of poverty to the island's iconic recording studios where maestro engineers put finishing touches on hit songs. Travel with Henry a young deadhead Long Islander who gets a job fresh out of college for Bob Marley's widow, sister Rita Marley, at the historic Tough Gong Music in Kingston, Jamaica. Listen to tales covering the next two decades of living in Kingston and producing reggae music's best-selling artists, including Toots and the Maytals, Damon Jr. Gong Marley, Gregory Isaacs, Bob Andy, Steel Pulse, Judy Moat, and more. The Rootsland Podcast recently launched its second season, Exodus. Subscribe now on your preferred podcasting platform. I'm sure many of you out there listening are as excited as I am for Fish to begin their Riviera Maya destination event tonight in Mexico. The band plays tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday and Sunday as well. These will be Fish's first public performances since last year's Halloween show in Las Vegas. The band played a concert on New Year's Eve, but it was at an empty venue in Pennsylvania that was live-streamed as Fish live from the Ninth Cube. Fish follows Mexico with another four-show run at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Those April concerts are makeup dates for the band's canceled New Year's Eve run at MSG. After that, Fish will play 34 shows across North America spanning Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend. Be sure to visit Jambase's Fish the Skinny Hub at jambase.com skinny for recaps and statistical breakdowns of every show Fish plays this year, starting with tonight's concert in Mexico. While stopping by Jambase, be sure to track all of your favorite bands to be notified whenever they add new tour dates. And tour date announcements keep rolling in. 
So be sure you don't miss a chance to go see live music. On a sad note, we were all sorry to learn of the death this week of Screaming Trees co-founder Mark Lanigan at the age of 57. A statement confirming his passing read, quote, Our beloved friend Mark Lanigan passed away this morning at his home in Killarney, Ireland. A beloved singer, songwriter, author, and musician. He was 57 and is survived by his wife, Shelley. No other information is available at this time. The family asks everyone to respect their privacy at this time. End quote. Lanigan co-founded Screaming Trees in 1984 in his native Ellingsburg, Washington. The band relocated to nearby Seattle, becoming one of the prominent contributors to the city's late 1980s and early 1990s grunge scene, alongside such peers as Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. Following Screaming Trees' breakup in 2000, Lanigan established a successful solo career and contributed to many collaborations such as Mad Season, Queens of the Stone Age, and forming the Glitter Twins with the Afghan wigs Greg Dooley, among several others. Rest easy, Mark. All right, now let's get to my interview with Jake Xerxes Fussell. We spoke a little while ago over a video call while he was on a short solo tour of the East Coast. Jake's album, Good and Green Again, is one of my favorites to come out so far in this already impressive year of releases. As he's done on his past three albums, this record mostly saw Jake showcasing his arrangements of traditional folk songs. But unlike his past albums, Good and Green Again includes a few of Jake's original songs, which was one of the many things we discussed during the interview. We also talked about his feelings as they relate to the traditions surrounding the traditional songs he uses as his sources. We also discussed finding and cataloging the source material, and how it's important to him to present the information about his sources in the album's liner notes. Jake told me about the album's contributions from Will Oldham, who records as Bonnie Prince Billy, as well as the other musicians who were part of the record, like producer James Elkington. So here's part of Rolling Mills Are Burning Down, from the Jake Xerxes Fussell album Good and Green Again, to lead us into our interview. are burning down and them Lynn mills are burning down plum down and them Lynn mills are burning down to the ground Never build them back anymore. I'm here with Jake Xerxes Fussell. That's yes. right. All right, I got your name right. All right, first try. And we're, <laughs> I'm here to talk to you about your excellent new album, uh, Good and Green Again. It's out now on Paradise of Bachelors. I've been listening to it for the past couple of weeks now. Um, uh, it's a beautiful album, man. Uh, I, I, I had an, a really cool experience the first time I was listening to it. I had it on loud through my house. And my wife and I both met each other in the kitchen and just were like, this is fucking awesome, right? And she was just <laughs> like, I was just coming to tell you the same thing. So uh, it, it really is just a, a, a really fantastic record that I've really been enjoying over the past couple of weeks, man. It, um, Thank you. I appreciate uh, that. And so uh, we were talking just a minute ago before we got the, the recording going, but that you're on tour, right? And uh, yep. it's, been, it's been an adventurous tour for you. Um, but you're out, playing oh, yeah. these, you're out playing these new songs, right? 
Yes, I'm not playing all of them, but I am playing. Uh, it depends on my mood each night. I'm not somebody who like has a set set list. Um, I keep a list of songs on the stage most of the time that I can like look down at and uh, refer to. Mm-hmm. But I do mostly like kind of go by feeling as the night goes on. Like, and I like you know have some variety. It's like oh. Maybe I've played too many slow songs in a row, so I'll play something upbeat now or in a different key or whatever. Um, So sometimes that means that like at the end of a night, I'll, I'll realize that I've not played that many new songs (laughs) on my recent (laughs) record. That's something that's happened to me over the years. It's like people will go to see me and uh, I'm not as good as some people are at like uh, promoting my recent efforts, but, uh, but yeah, I have been playing some of these songs. Well, you're here now. You're doing it now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and so once again, a lot of the songs on the new record are pulled from sort of the, the traditional realm of music, the, the um, public domain. Um, they're credited as traditional. And, and I'm wondering, is it your intent when you're re- recording these songs to, to carry on the tradition of not just the song itself, but some of maybe the traditions that are attached to those songs? I don't really consider myself like a tradition bearer in that way, because I do uh, recognize that there's like a difference between me and someone who grew up within a a community where those songs were uh, traditionally sung or like a family tradition, you know? Right. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm the kid of uh, documentarians and people who are involved in folklore. So they were sort of uh, my parents and their their contemporaries were looking at this music and and other aspects of like traditional culture as observers, you know. So they, mm-hmm. they weren't like entirely academics or anything like that. But uh, you know that makes it sound a lot more studious than it was in some ways. But they, they were like observers, documentarians. So I tend to come to it from that angle as both somebody who's interested in this stuff intellectually historically and all that but also somebody who's like an artist i guess or trying to figure out my um my way through it all uh in a, in a creative way so um i don't really like take it on in that way the sort of shouldering the burden of a of a, being a tradition bearer or anything like that um some people have that who uh say grew up in a household where they're grandmother and their great-grandmother and their great-great-grandmother were all ballad singers or they're like a uh, eighth generation um, stoneware potter or something like that you know right or if they grew up in a in a a, um, church where a certain type of uh, lined out hymn singing was done and they you know uh, there are people who grew up within sort of nestled within like sort of community or family traditions and I'm, I guess if I did grow up in one, it was sort of a tradition of being interested in these things, but mm-hmm. it was there was some distance there. I, I wasn't like, um, uh, you know, I wasn't listening to my grandparents sing these songs necessarily. Right. Right. Um, uh, but yeah. your dad was uh, instrumental in no pun intended in, in, getting you uh sort of interested in this type of music right you said before you oh, know, yeah. your parents both, were documentary my parents were 
Yeah, both my parents were. And um, when I was a kid, you know, my dad was a museum curator for years and then uh, sort of um, independent folklorist and then Brian writer. And my mom was an English teacher for years, but also uh, an artist and um, interested in this stuff as well. So when I was a kid, uh, yeah, I would go around with them while they were, uh, you know, my dad wrote a book about um, traditional music in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was like a guidebook to traditional music venues. And so I went around with him yeah. for several years and, Met like a how, lot of great musicians. How old were you then when you were doing that? Sorry, well, then that was a little that was a little later when he got hired to do that. That was like in the late nineties, early two thousands. So I was okay. like a teenager, maybe early twenties. Okay, nineteen twenty something like that. Um, but met a lot of great people that way. Edda Baker, the wonderful uh, mm-hmm. uh, guitarist, and. Uh, this Bobby, this uh, ballad singer named Bobby McMillan, who just passed a few weeks ago, was a great, great ballad singer and a lot of other people. So that was one of several kind of like projects that I was sort of, uh, I guess I was involved in. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't Adja- doing any work or anything. You were, you were at least adjacent to it. it. Yeah, a witness. That's a good yes, way to put exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like there's sort of a, 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 a combination in the approach to not like there's a scholarly aspect to it as well as a uh, artistic aspect It kind of blends those two things. And that came to mind when I was looking at the, the notes to your record and the citations that you have for the traditional songs that they're, they're it, it's like a bibliography. And I, I feel like that's <laughs> almost like what you're talking about here with like documenting and, and, straddling those two sort of you know the the sort of academic fields and the artistic field yeah i mean that the reason that i do that one of the reasons that i i I put those like very thorough sort of bibliography type things in the back of my record are that you know i want to be as transparent as i can about my sources um because i do take some liberty um with my arrangements and things like that. And maybe people don't instantly recognize some of these songs. Um, so I like when, um, you know, a lot of people who are like hardcore folk music nerds will hear this stuff and immediately know where it comes from or have some idea about where it comes from. Mm-hmm. But people who aren't real familiar with it might look at those records and they'll say, well, what is this song? And then they can dig a little deeper and go listen to those recordings that are from the library of Congress or, Alan Lomax's filled recordings or, or wherever they might be from. Um, and I, I just figure that's like helpful to a listener who might be curious and opening doors. I mean, there are so many records that were uh, touchstones for me when I was getting interested in traditional music as a kid and mm-hmm. always appreciated it. Uh, people who are like more transparent with their sources, mm-hmm. but yeah, as far as like creative and, um, academic or or not academic but like creative and studious or whatever i've always like sort of bounced back and forth between those two things in my own life you know i was in grad school for a couple years and i enjoyed that and i um i got a lot out of it but i also realized that uh, i didn't want to be an academic like that world wasn't really made Mm -hmm. for me you know Mm -hmm. and 
at the same time, I saw a lot of stuff within the music community that I felt like didn't make an effort to be transparent in those ways that I was just talking about. So um, I guess at a certain point, I, I don't know, or maybe it was just a growing organic thing that happened. I realized like, why do I have to keep these two parts of myself separate? Like they yeah. kind of can be the same thing, you know? And there's people there's, I'm not the only person who's done that. Like uh, there's other artists who have done it and can, you know, um, have, have done that kind of thing with traditional music. So I, I've, I've admired that for a long time too. I was going to ask if there are sort of other musicians that are attempting kind of the same strategy that you have that you look to as sort of an inspiration. Well, there's definitely always been like composers and like the classical music world. Well, I don't know okay. if classical music or orchestral music uh, mm -hmm. world who have done that kind of thing. And like, a, there's been this crossover of like avant-garde and uh, traditional music, you know, there's people like, even as recently as like Van Dyke Parks does that kind of stuff or sure. um, um, trying to think of who else. And then there's other, lots of people in like popular music who do it. Um, uh, I mean, that's a lot of what popular music is in a way. It's just like constant borrowing of traditional music. Right. Some more obvious than others, like you could think about obviously Bob Dylan or uh, Rock Hooter or something like that. But mm -hmm. um uh, Taj Mahal, you know, yes, a lot of artists like that who sort of dip in and out of uh, traditional music, but also kind of keeping their strange brand on everything that they do, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and not being like a, a purist necessarily. Um, uh, Taj and Ray Cooter are just announced they're do putting out a new album in a couple months. I just saw that. Yeah, yeah. It's all, that's really cool. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned too that sometimes listeners, when they listen to your songs, might not necessarily know the the source material right away, and and that's part of the reason why you include that information. But in your experience, how often do do you find that those songs that are the source of the same song are so disparate that you would never have maybe thought that they were from the same source themselves? Does that make sense? Phrase it again, like it phrase so, it a so different like, way. So like, uh, for for love farewell, you list three or four different songs that uh -huh. you drew information from. Have you in your experience ever listened to those three songs and been like, wow, I didn't know that those were together. Oh, right. Yeah. That's a good question. That does happen sometimes where, uh, yeah, well actually it sort of happened in the, in the instance of that particular song. Like uh, I'd heard this Jody Stecker and Kate Brislin record and I really liked this one tune that's on that record called uh, Love Farewell. But then I was like, oh, wait, there's another variant of this that's totally different that I've heard before that has really similar lyrics. Uh, that's like from a compilation of uh, sort of like modern interpretations of what the songs of the Redcoats, like of okay. British soldiers, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I listened to that and I'd heard that before and really liked it. And I, re I never put that two to those two together. I was like, oh, this is actually like the, one of these is a variant of the other. And then I did some research on the back end and found this like field recording that I found out too had been like um, actually the source for 
the guy that Jody Stecker had learned the song from. So anyway, <laughs> it wound up being this whole thing that I was able to piece together, like reverse engineering. And that kind of thing happens a lot. Like a lot of times I've been reading about, you know, folk song books and knowing about ballads and stuff for so long. It's been such an obsession of mine for so many years that especially from the, uh, like American repertoire, if I hear, um, a ballad or a tune a lot of times i can kind of place it in a family of songs mm-hmm. like it's sort sure. of a web there that i'm like oh kind of aware of the world that that comes from or at least the era like oh that language kind of sounds a little victorian or something so it's probably from this era or it sounds like more stripped down so it's either like more recent or it's like older and has been like sort of fractured through the years and maybe used to be another type of song and now it's like this other thing uh, like maybe there used to be more of a narrative there, but now it's like turned into like a play part, like a kid's song or something, you know, a lot of times that kind of thing. So I'm able to kind of go back and fill in some of that work uh, with some guesswork. And sometimes it's really hard. Like you don't find much at all, but um, Mm -hmm. every now and then you'll find like some really interesting um, stuff back in there. If you go and look at old song books or archival materials. Come lie sand, they're on for marching. Everyone is true love searching. Cannons roar, drums are beating. Oh my love, there's no retreating. Ring farewell to my love farewell. We're all marching around very well A ring farewell To my love farewell We're all marching around very well A ring farewell To my love farewell We're all marching around very well keep an archive of your own like do you have a catalog of this stuff how do you you know you have such an extensive knowledge you've done so much studying of this stuff is there do you have your own sort of i don't know bible or whatever you want to call it database or something that you can <laughs> no turn to? i don't i have i have my standard things that i go to like there's a few books that are really great song books and then there's a few websites that are really good for looking up stuff sure. um and those websites are mainly like uh, forums that are held together by people who are just like longtime deep researchers and um, and like also just in folk music enthusiasts, you know. So there's one called Mudcat and there's another one called well, there's a few of them. And then there's some. um just like archives that are online that are just big folk song collections of field recordings. So there's a library of Congress, obviously. Right. Um, and then there's like folkways records, but then there's this, um, um, Frank Brown collection, at, uh, and from North Carolina, that's at Duke university. And there's a lot of different archives that you can go through if you want to find like variants of old ballads or whatever. And there's a lot of old books. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of internet, research (laughs) yeah um do you do a lot of listening to music that was made years ago as opposed to you know sort of contemporary stuff 
I used to. Um, it's a funny thing. I don't um, spend a ton of time listening to old field recordings. I mean, sometimes I do if there's a particular thing that I haven't heard or something, but I used mm-hmm. to really dig through all that kind of stuff for years and years. These days, my listening tends to be more like guided by what I'm interested in um, in terms of like audio and production or performance, you know, as opposed to like yeah. historical things. So I'm, these days I listen to a lot of jazz and stuff like that. Um, if I'm going to put on a record or, um, you know, songwriters who I like, I don't spend a ton of time listening to old field recordings and stuff. But occasionally I do, you know, I dip back into that. Um, uh, it's always there and there's always like enough material there for me to like sort of pull from to try to find something interesting. Like I'm, um, but no, I don't, I don't, not, not the way that I used to. Sure. Was there, was there anything that you were listening to at either like before you were making this record or as you were making this record that you think had an impact on the sound of, of good and green again? Probably, um, there's a couple of bands there. I really love this group from Quebec called La Botine Syriant. Um, okay. They're like one of these Quebecois or like traditional music of Quebec, like wow. a, a sort of a Celtic music, you know. Sure, sure. Um, lots of fiddles and accordions. Accordion, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, and uh, singing in French. So I don't understand the lyrics, but because uh, I don't speak French, but there's uh, they're they're one of these bands that started off like pretty hardcore traditionalist, you know. And as they progressed through the years, they got sort of more ornate uh, arrangements and production choices. Uh, and then, like in the '80s and mid '80s to the early '90s, they made some really great records that I listened to a lot. Um, I like those. They just have like really creative uh, ideas for like horn arrangements and things like that. Um, I also listen a lot to these two records by a group called the Latin Playboys that um, that's a side project of David Hidalgo and Louis Perez from Uh Los Lobos. Okay. Yeah. So those records we're like, I don't know if you've heard those, but they're like sort of. I don't think I've heard the. Rec- I, I know who you're talking about, but I I don't know if I'm familiar yeah. with those records. Those records are really great. They were I think they're from like the mid, maybe to late '90s, but um, they were like recorded on cassette, so they're kind of lo-fi, and they uh-huh. have like they're real kind of like they're almost like post-rock or something. They have this okay. real kind of like interesting. I've played that for friends and they like, I've loved Los Lobos. It's one of my favorite bands, but like as a lot of my friends are not aware of the beauty of Los Lobos. And then I'll yeah. play them these Latin Playboys records and they're like, what? That's like the same guys who did La Bamba. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. If all you know is La Bamba, then you don't know Los Lobos well enough. <laughs> exactly. They're such a deep band. You know? And the whole thing about Los Lobos is so interesting is like, you know, they started off in East LA wanting to be like the Fairport convention of their community, you know, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so yeah. Like we can, we can like play traditional Mexican string band music and uh, yeah, they're great. And I've seen them a bunch live and sometimes it's just like a total rock show that you might expect. And then the next night it could be like completely like half the set is them doing like Hirocho tunes or yeah, whatever. Yeah, totally or, you know, really, yeah. yeah. Really beautiful. So, 
um, I, so I, I, before we get going more on the production of the record, I do want to ask about your a little bit more about your songwriting because this record is the is is it the first that has original music that you have put on an album, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. It feels like a little bit of a stretch to say original, even though I guess the songs didn't exist before. <laughs> yeah, before you, you I, gave them I the titles, them. right? Yeah, I gave them the titles. I mean, they're still sort of based on traditional motifs, but not directly enough to any one melody or anything for me to say that that's what they are. Right. Um, they're just sort of loosely based on some like ideas that um, that are just more sort of coarse and loose. But um, yeah, I, did, I guess I did write them, but writing feels like a serious term because I don't like to sit down and write. You know, they're just sort of things that have been floating around. But the only ones that are quote originals on this record are instrumentals uh which i did because i've i've always kind of like written instrumentals and had them around and i've played them before at shows and stuff not a ton but like i've always had them around things that i would fool around with and um i thought it might work good on this record to do that because um there's a couple of long narrative ballads, you know, and it's nice mm -hmm. to give the listener a break, but also I thought the production quality on this record, it was like, Oh, it could be more intentional with the way certain instruments come in on these instrumentals. It could be really nice to have just like a few of these that would be um, part of the overall feel of the record that don't have to be something that the, the listener really has to engage with the lyrical narrative, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So they're not throwaway or anything. I just thought like, it's a nice, I like to think a lot about the flow and the sequence of a record from beginning to end. And I thought that um, this record, the way it was produced might lend itself to that. Yeah. They really uh, tie things together They're And they're, yeah. they're beyond, but they're beyond interludes. You know, I wouldn't, I, they're, right. they're, they're much more advanced than uh, something like that. Um, do you have a, similar to sort of a, a catalog of, of traditional songs? Do you have a catalog of instrumental riffs or instrumental melodic lines that you kind of keep around for that type of stuff? I'm always working on them. Um, I'm always fooling with them. And sometimes they immediately go into something that I'm doing that is a traditional song. That's like, I'm, I'm rearranging or something. Mm -hmm. And then other times they sort of just sit, on their own as a, as a thing. And that's what happened with these is like, I didn't necessarily want to place these within like a lyrical uh, setting. I thought stand up on as instrumentals, but yeah, I kind of always have a few that I'm working on. And then mm -hmm. there's others that I'll be working on for months and months. that I don't know what to do with. I can't, you know, sometimes they take longer to settle than others. <laughs>
Now the song Washington that ends the album, do you do you consider that an original? I don't know. You know, it's a it's good kind question. of falls like between, a, right? It's got a little bit of both. <laughs> right. So yeah. the lyrics I guess you could say that that song didn't exist as a song before I made it one. So in that way, yes. But uh, so do, I just do you consider uh, just, sorry, but do you consider that melody that that the the music then to be wholly original for that track? Yeah, yeah, I made that yeah. up. Okay. Um but so I made up that you know, that melody with the chord progression and all that. But, um, but the lyrics came from this old rug that I saw in a book. It's like an anonymous maker that had these, this little line on it about, about George Washington. So I just lifted that. Um, but you know, that's a thing that a lot of people have done in the past. Like I used to hang out with this guy, Chris Sullivan, who's a poet from San Francisco and he would like make, poetry and kind of write songs just like seeing things that he would see in his everyday life you know like uh-huh. a signage yeah. on the street you know and turn it right. into yeah. poetry it's kind of like um there is like a whole school of poetry that are you know poets that are into that kind of thing like a sort of co-opting things that are in the public domain or things that are out in the um mundane found, things from the yeah, like found art found yeah. poetry yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so it's kind of part of that i guess because i i had uh, hung out with him a lot and seen his process and kind of found that fascinating um but also saw that it was sort of not too far off base from what i already did anyway so yeah. um so that's where that came from i never had wouldn't have occurred to me before to write a use lyrics off of a um a rug, you know, a picture of a rug that I found in a book. But well, how did that happen? How did it go from seeing that picture to thinking those are lyrics and I'm going to put an attach a melody to it and make a song? I was looking at that book for some reason, probably a couple of years ago, and saw that uh, rug, and I thought it was funny that little rhyme. Yeah. Uh, General Washington, noblest of men, his house, his oh, horse, so his so cherry so tree, so and him. <laughs> and then there's a. Uh, each one of those is pictured there and mm-hmm. it's kind of goofy looking. And there was just something about it that's stuck with me. I also didn't know quite what it meant. Like I didn't know how to take it you now. And, um, and so it sort of stuck with me, you know, it's, it's just a thing that I had in my head, like a rhyme that was just around, you know, that I'd sort of absorbed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I had this melody and uh, was playing around with it and thought it had some nice potential and I didn't know what to sing on top of it and just started singing that it worked. It, it definitely um, did. I... It, yeah. It worked in a way that surprised me. So I thought like, Oh, this is actually something here. So that's just where, where it came from. I love the song. It turned out really, really beautiful. And it's a great way to Thank end you. the album too. Uh, I like the long intro and then the lyrics and then the way it kind of sends you on your way.
we've mentioned it now a couple of times though too uh the production of the album it's it's beautiful it sounds great um whether i have it on headphones or blasting out mm -hmm. of my stereo you worked with james elkington on on the album he produced it um so when did that come to mind to work with james and, and how did it come to fruition I had known him a little bit like in the past several years, just had met him in passing a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we have some mutual friends. He had played in Steve Gunn's band and then mm -hmm. he had produced a record for Joan Shelley, who's okay. a good friend of mine and uh, her partner, Nathan Salzberg. Mm -hmm. um, um, so they uh were friends he and oh and also nathan salzberg and jim had made these like instrumental records together that were really pretty like sort of guitar instrumentals and he he worked with a lot of people and then i, I met him a few times he'd come going tour he'd drop through uh chapel hill or something and we'd say hello then uh we talked like about doing uh, a run of shows together so we did do several shows in the midwest like I don't know, maybe like four shows, four or five shows together mm -hmm. a few years ago. And we had a lot of fun. We really hit it off. And we did a lot of talking about music um, while we were driving. And just like, I immediately knew like, he's somebody with a real varied sort of musical past. Like he does a lot of collaborations with different types of artists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he plays a lot with Jeff Tweedy and sort of the, mm -hmm. is sort of a, uh, in the Wilco camp, you know, in some yeah, ways, but also definitely. has like does all this stuff with like tortoise and sort of like a post Rocky thing. And then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he's got like, and had played with like Nico case and people like that in the past. So he has, you know, been around a bunch of different scenes over the years. In addition to having this like very impressive sort of fundamental, uh, um, like, British trad guitar finger picking thing, like almost like a Burt Yanch kind of deal. Yep. So, yep. um, when his solo records are great, I'd, I'd really enjoyed those in the past several years. Of course, we're on the same record label. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, when just the way that he was talking about music and sort of talking about production choices and stuff, I was just like, Oh, I really, would like to work with him because the last couple of records I made, I produced myself and I'm, I'm happy with the way that they turned out, but I'm really not good at like uh, directing people, <laughs> organizing yeah. things. And it's nice mm -hmm. to have another voice there who can kind of like get all that stuff together and help you see your ideas through. And, uh, and my approach in the past had been to like get everybody together in the same room and record at once or like maybe record, you know, a trio of people and then overdub these instruments or whatever. And that had worked, but um, I wanted to be much more kind of stripped down. And uh, and it's not like there's fewer players on this record, but uh, I didn't want everybody playing at once. I wanted to be really intentional about where certain instruments come in. And I wanted uh, to be like, yeah, very intentional about arrangements. So I knew that Jim could like help me with that. So that was... Uh, that was great to have his assistance on. So what was the recording process like? Were what did, did COVID impact that? Were you able to be in the same room? Yes. And no, we definitely recorded in the middle of COVID, but we all got like tested and 
were wearing KN95s. Not everybody was in the same room at the same time, but we did do quite a bit of live recording too, mm-hmm. uh, with bass and drums, um, and some piano. Like there's a instrumental track in there called Frolic that is mostly like everybody playing at once in the same room. Um, but a lot of stuff we had to do some overdubs and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was a little tricky, but it was mm-hmm. not so tricky as it had been in the past, just because I had Jim to help me sort of like keep it all straight. You know, even when you get like more than three people involved anytime, it's not uh, anybody's fault or anything. It's just a, a matter of too many um, cooks in the kitchen, too many people involved. And then you, you don't know where to place certain people. And then some people, you know, maybe don't know what to play or feel like they have to play because they're there. And then, you know, it winds up being a little bit um, hard to like tell people like, Oh, you don't actually have to play on this one or, you know, whatever. Um, And it's hard in the moment to know like how to thin things out and stuff, because my job in the moment is to make sure that I have the whole, like the picture of the thing is uh, making sense in terms of the form of the song. And, Recording is its own weird science, you know, that's mm-hmm. separate from music making. So like, right. um, it's, you know, and the more, there's some people who go into recording who really already know that and they have a leg up when they know that, you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of people go into recording their first record and just think like, well, I'm going to sing my songs and into the microphone and this is going to sound good as long as the engineer is good. And I wish that were true. Um, I think it's generally true if there's a plan in place, but, um, you know, it gets, stuff gets tricky quick because every little technical thing has an, an impact on the way it's going to sound, like what kind of mic you use and what kind of room you're in or what kind of board the, thing is going through and you know all that mm-hmm, stuff just mm-hmm. has such a big impact on the character of the thing it defines it so um you know recording is weird like i remember <laughs> uh seeing an interview with jerry garcia one time where he was talking about like he was he was like recording is not music he's like this basically when you go in and you become like alchemist or whatever you know you have to create this effect or whatever he was like it's an illusion of of your music which is really true you're just you are sort of like creating the illusion of music um but hopefully there's some music in there (laughs) oh i think i think it comes across as extremely musical um (laughs) you you also had some some guests involved i know bonnie prince billy is one of them that he appears on the opening track love farewell um is he is he on other songs any other songs as well he's on that song called that one frolic that's uh the, so he's an, part of the vocals yeah he is he's like, woo, woo. he's doing some woo with me on there i'll play that uh, woo, so woo, woo when we publish this next so we'll yeah. hear that right we'll hear that right now <laughs>
Um, yeah. yeah, he's terrific. He sounds great. Um, what's your relationship with Will? How how long have you known him? I've known him probably shoot maybe five or six years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he I met him through Nathan Salzberg, who I was talking about earlier. They both yeah. live in Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and uh, I first couple of times I ever played in Louisville was it this little um like storefront DIY space it was really just Nathan's uh office basically yeah. uh but it was this place called Clovine and he used to have invite people from around the neighborhood to come to shows and so just a tiny little space and but Will came to a few of those and um I think the first couple of times I met him I wasn't really aware that that's who that was <laughs> uh, <laughs> right of course I knew him his music and stuff and I'd been a fan, but like, I, I wasn't like a super fan or anything. I just knew of him more mm-hmm. than I knew, knew him, his music really. But, um, he's always so sweet, you know, really kind. And then, um, you know, through the years got to know each other pretty well and he texts me a lot and stuff. And so, um, he always said like, if you ever want, vocals or anything just let me know like just hit me up so this uh, there was this was an opportunity because he i definitely wanted a high harmony on this song and uh his register was just right for this one so i'm glad that worked out i've, I've got will on my coffee mug here so oh that's cool <laughs> yeah. mm. uh, and and yeah, so he's, who, a, he's a sweet guy and when you so how did he record his parts did was was he able to be in the same room with you or was that done remotely he did that from home. Yeah. 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 Um, and when you have somebody like him come on to a track, was there a lot of instruction or is it just bring your sweet voice and, and, and deliver the goods? There was a little bit of back and forth. Uh, the good thing about him is he can record things quickly from home and like, he's like trying different things out and, you know, do a few takes that are like super weird and way out there and just like, and then, you know, the next run might be like reeling it in some, and this is more like a standard harmony or something like that. So yeah, we tried out a few things. It was easy to go back and forth with them on that. And and then some of the who are some of the other musicians that played on the album? I want to I want to give them a little bit of a, a shout out here. Yeah. So um, all the bass playing is this guy Casey Toll, who lives in Durham, who's like my neighbor and friend. Who he and I have played together for quite a few years great uh upright bassist who sort of has like a jazz background but also played in some like indie bands he plays with this band called mount mariah uh-huh. um, and a few other bands around he plays with nathan bowles trio um and then libby rodenbow plays fiddle and um let's see does she she doesn't actually sing on this record she's sung um before on my like my last record she played fiddle and sang harmony but um she plays fiddle on this she's a good friend she's in a band called mipso um, right, right. and she's a you know sort of uh durham a-list musician who's yeah, around yeah, a lot yeah. uh, and, and a good buddy and then um joe she westerland great. she yeah she's great um Joe Westerlin plays drums on this megaphone, and percussion, megaphone yeah. and lots of other stuff. Um, great, great drummer. 
He sounds, he, he, I think really shines on the album, by the way, man. Like I think his, his playing is so textured and, and, yeah. and, and subtle in the right ways. I mean, it's just, it, he really gives the, a lot of, a lot of the songs, the right balance that they need. I feel like. Yeah. That's why I brought him in. Cause I knew I'd seen him play quite a few times around town and he's a real versatile drummer, but he's also somebody who just like that textured thing. He's really yeah. got it, you know? Yeah. And he also, you know, he's got like a jazz weirdo background, but he also <laughs> like, uh, you know, he'll do the thing where he like uh, will collect like coat hangers and like uh, push pins and little things yeah, to like yeah, make yeah. little tinkery yeah. noises with. And you're like, how did you make that sound so if you pretty? Can bang like, on it, I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He'll be like shaking a can of beans or something and make it sound beautiful, but. Um, yeah, he's great, and I knew that I didn't want this record to be real drum heavy. Like, I didn't want to have drums in the. Um, mm -hmm. At first, I didn't think it would have drums at all, and then I thought, well, if it has percussion or drums, it could if, if they were like really uh, specific sounding, it could be really yes. nice with some texture. So, I'm glad that worked out with him. And then um, there's a guy named Joseph DeCosimo who plays fiddle on this record as well who's like a local um he's more known in like the old time string band world oh, okay. uh, as a teacher of claw hammer banjo and fiddle oh, wow. Wow. great singer um and he's done a lot of work in that world over the years he learned how to play uh, banjo he used to play with Clyde Davenport who's like a traditional banjo player from the yeah. Cumberland Plateau tradition and really amazing um uh, old time player so I was I wanted to have his fiddle on some of this too. Um, and who else is on there? Of course, Jim Elkington plays piano. Some, he doesn't really play guitar on this record. There might be one track where he does a little bit of like atmospheric stuff, but, um, uh, so who's, who played pedal steel? Pedal steel is Nathan Golub, who is a guy in town in Durham who I've played with off and on for the last several years. Um, I'm, a, and I'm he, a pedal steel sucker and it sounds so um, good yeah. on this record, man. Yeah. Like, he's really great in that he knows, he knows all of that honky tonk stuff. He plays in honky tonk bands and uh -huh, he knows uh -huh. that whole world, but he also has this like atmospheric, uh, I was just gonna say atmospheric. Yeah, totally. It's yeah, just, he, he, he can kind of do that like crazy stratospheric stuff too. Just sets uh, a mood. He doesn't man. like, it's weird. He doesn't like use a lot of pedals either. Like he's, he's has a weird thing where he could like, figures out how to do all that just by using his hands, like weird just effects. The instrument. Wow. Yeah. That's he like killer. uses these, he can find these bizarre overtones and uh, he's just playing through like a little PV amp. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Like, <laughs> to shit. Watch him do it. He's a really talented guy, but yeah, he's, he plays in a lot of different bands around town. Uh, and he's also done some like self-released solo instrumental stuff. That's really beautiful. So yeah, I, I've played him with him off and on for, last several years um he's a great musician so i was happy to have him on it too well i uh i appreciate you taking the time to talk with me man um i know you're on tour so stay safe out there um i hope nothing goes wrong with the voice anymore um, <laughs> appreciate it uh everybody out there should check out your new record good and green again wherever you, you get your music i i've been listening to it a ton man and i, I hope I, I intend to do a lot more 
Um, so again, I'm, I'm glad we got to catch up and, and finally meet and talk. Um, it's a, it's a pleasure and, uh, best of luck to you, man. Thanks so much, Annie. Really nice talking to you. All right. You take care. All right, Jake. All right. Take care. See you. If I had a breast glass wherein you might be whole, your name secret, I would write in letters of bright gold and bright gold. that sound means we've reached the end of this jam-based podcast episode thanks as always to each and every one of you out there for listening we definitely appreciate your support thanks to our sponsors schmogger's den and the rootsland podcast jake alexander helped put the episode together thanks jake we'll be back next week so in the meantime stay safe out there and go see live music <laughs>